What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. We have another interesting discussion for tonight. We're talking about the resurrection. And we have Stuart and the Inquisitor. Thanks so much for you guys coming out. If this is your first time at this channel, we are a nonpartisan channel. We like to foster discussions for... Um, people of all backgrounds, in any opinion. We like to make sure that everybody has an equal ground to, to stand on while we do these discussions. And so with that, uh, let's keep it friendly in the live chat. I'll be paying attention. Uh, let's just not have any... any. Uh, let's try and keep it to the arguments and, and off the personal attacks. Um, I'm going to keep an eye on the live chat. So what I'll do is if you tag me... At Converse Contender, you should be able to see my uh, name under my picture here. What I'll do is I will take your question, and then at the end we'll do a Q&A section, and I'll ask your question. If you want to get your um, if you want to get your question to the top of the list, if you would just uh, you can send in a super chat, and I'll push it to the top. Um, and uh, last night we had some problems with the super chats. But that was YouTube's fault. Um, but I do it a little differently. I take uh, screen captures of the Super Chats. That way that I, they don't get lost. That's the way I've always done it. It's easier for me. So no worries about that tonight. Just tag me with your questions at Converse Contender and I'll ask them. Uh, let us know if there's any problems with the audio or anything. And so our format for tonight is we're going to have 12-minute opening statements from each of these gentlemen. Then we're going to have 8-minute rebuttals kind of back to the classical style, and then we will go into a 50-minute, um, uh, not cross-examination, but open discussion, and then we will go to, I will let them have about five minutes apiece to give their closing statements, and then Q&A. So if there's anything um, that you guys uh, need out of me, just let me know in the comments, and with that, I'm going to kick it over to the Inquisitor, for your opening 12 minutes. Okay, thank you, Converse. Um, do you mind uploading my slides, please? Sure. One second, let's get you off here. So while you're doing that, I'd just like to uh, thank you and James for having me on uh, your channel. Uh, and I'd like to thank Stuart as well for being my uh, opponent in tonight's debate. Um, Okay, so in this opening uh, rem remarks, I'm going to be making four points. Uh, my first point is that extraordinary claims re 
quite extraordinary evidence. Uh, and the claim that Jesus was resurrected is an extraordinary claim. Uh, and I'm going to argue, not, not only is there not extraordinary evidence, but actually there's not even ordinary evidence. What there is, is hearsay evidence, um, but that hearsay evidence is highly unreliable. Okay, we don't have evidence from witnesses, we just have hearsay evidence. I'm going to argue the evidence is unreliable because when we look actually at the resurrection story in detail, we'll find that it's riddled with inconsistencies and troubling details. So I'll touch upon some of those. And uh, the resurrection story shows clear signs of external tampering and misdevelopment. And I'll talk more about that as well. Okay, so first of all, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Um, this is what Carl Sagan famously said. And to claim that someone, anyone, rose from the dead is an extraordinary claim because it's a claim of the supernatural. Um, now, unfortunately for Christians, uh, outside of the New Testament, we don't have any evidence from the first century, that is up to the year 100 CE, uh, that Jesus even lived. Uh, there's no contemporary evidence documenting uh, what Jesus did, or even that there was a person called Jesus outside of the New Testament. Uh, much less do we have any evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead outside of the New Testament. Um, now, if the story were true, we would expect, expect to find independent corroborating evidence from outside of the, old, outside of the New Testament. Uh, why is that? Well, Jesus's crucifixion uh, was not an ordinary event. Uh, according to the Gospel of Matthew, the crucifixion caused an earthquake and three hours of complete darkness during the daytime, and it was followed by many dead people rising from their tombs. Okay, so if that had really happened, we would expect those events to have been recorded by Jewish, Roman, Greek, and Egyptian historians. Okay, but we don't have a single historical record to support Matthew's claims about some kind of solar eclipse, three hours of darkness, and some kind of uh, zombie apocalypse in Jerusalem with hundreds of dead people walking around. Okay, so we would expect to find that evidence if it actually happened. Secondly, the evidence that we have in the Gospels is hearsay evidence, and hearsay evidence is not very reliable. Uh, it's especially unreliable when it comes from somebody who is anonymous and someone who is making claims about supernatural events that occurred decades previously. Okay, now that applies to the gospel accounts of the resurrection. The authors of the gospels are anonymous. And they're given the names Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as titles by Irenaeus uh, about 100 years after the gospels were written. Uh, but those gospels did not claim to be written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Uh, they were anonymous, as I say. They were written in, third, in the third person um, and we don't know who, who wrote them. Uh, so that makes the evidence, you know, the hearsay evidence even less uh, credible. Uh, secondly, the Gospels were written many decades after uh, Jesus was crucified and supposedly resurrected. The earliest Gospel, the Gospel of Mark, was written around 70 CE, which is about 35 years uh, after Jesus was crucified. And the latest gospel, the Gospel of John, was written around 100 CE. Okay, so that length of time gave uh, plenty of time for a resurrection myth to develop. Now, 2,000 years ago, uh, the people 
living at that time were very susceptible to superstitious, supernatural beliefs, uh, including their belief in resurrection stories. Okay, we can see this from the Old Testament. Uh, if you look at the Old Testament, there are actually four cases of people being brought back from death. First uh, Samuel, a witch raised Samuel from the dead. In First Kings, Elijah raised a boy from the dead. In Second Kings, Elisha brought a dead boy back to life by lying on top of him. Uh, I guess he was a forerunner of the Catholic priests. Uh, and then in Second Kings, a corpse was accidentally brought back to life when it came into contact with Elisha's bones. Uh, so in the Bible, really, there's nothing particularly special uh, about Jesus's resurrection, right? It seems that they're almost to a penny. How about the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, we find out the people around that time often believed in false resurrection stories. Okay, if we look at Matthew and Mark, uh, we find out that the ruler of Galilee thought that Jesus was a resurrected John the Baptist. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, we're told that some people thought Jesus was the resurrected Elijah. Uh, now, I assume that Stuart and other Christians don't believe those resurrection stories, but what it shows is that people living 2,000 years ago were prone to making up their own resurrection beliefs. Okay, third, there are inconsistencies and troubling details in the Gospels. Okay, uh, if we go to Luke 24, we find out, find out there that two of Jesus' followers failed to recognize Jesus when he appeared to them after his death. Now, how could that be? They were Jesus' Jesus's followers and they didn't recognize him. Now, I've never seen a dead person come back to life. Uh, I'm not sure Stuart has either. Um, so I don't know how his appearance might have changed as a result of being resurrected. But if his appearance changed so much that his followers failed to recognize him, how can we be sure that what they saw was the real Jesus? And this opens up some possibilities. I mean, I'm not going to claim that these possibilities are necessarily what actually happened. None of us know what happened because we weren't there. Um, but, you know, one possibility is that someone was posing as Jesus in order to gain some cheap notoriety, and the people believed that person, okay? That at least seems like a more plausible possibility than the supernatural claim that someone was raised from the dead. Uh, so if, if Jesus' two followers couldn't be sure about the apparition that was right in front of them, I'd like to know how Christians like Stuart, who have never seen Jesus appear, I presume, how can they be so sure nearly 2,000 years later? Right, now we come to some inconsistencies in the Gospels. Now, I, there are so many here, there's no way I could include all of them in an opening 12 minutes. Uh, but here's just a, a small selection uh, of some of the inconsistencies in the crucifixion and resurrection story. Uh, what day was Jesus crucified? Mark says it was a day after the Passover meal. John says it was a day before. At what time was Jesus crucified? Mark says it was at the third hour. John says it was, it was at the sixth hour. How many women visited Jesus' tomb? According to Matthew, there were two women, Mary Magdalene and another Mary. According to Mark, there were three, there were those two and Salome. According to Luke, there was Joanna as well. And then in John, we're only told about Mary Magdalene going to the tomb. What did the women see at the tomb? According to Mark, the women saw one man. According to Matthew, they saw one angel. According to Luke, the women saw two men. And John says they saw two angels. So what did they see? Was it one or two? And were they men? 
or were they angels? My fourth point is uh, to do with the external tampering and myth development. Okay, so we, we can't prove that it was a myth, but what we can show is evidence indicating that it probably was a myth. All right, the earliest gospel, the Gospel of Mark, as I said before, was written around 70 CE. And the story of Jesus' post-mortem appearance uh, is at Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. And those 12 verses are missing from the earliest manuscripts of Mark, okay, which strongly suggests that they were not in the original version of Mark. Okay, those verses only appear centuries after uh, Mark was originally written. Now, I'd like to know why it is that the Bible translators still included those 12 verses, despite knowing that the verses were not in the earliest manuscripts, and why it is that only a few translations, such as the NIV, include an explanatory note for the reader that the 12 verses were missing from the earliest and best manuscripts. Right? So why the lack of honesty? I always thought that honesty was supposed to be a Christian characteristic. Now, like most myths, the resurrection story becomes more elaborate with later renditions of the tale. When we look at Mark, we find in the original, or at least in the earliest manuscripts, Mark's gospel ends with the discovery of an empty tomb. It's in Mark 16, verse 9. Mark didn't describe a resurrection, and he didn't describe any post-resurrection appearances. As we move on to the later gospels, the story becomes more fantastical. Mark Sorry, Matthew says that, as I said before, the crucifixion caused an earthquake and three hours of darkness, some kind of solar eclipse. And the crucifixion was also followed by many dead people rising from their tombs. So why were these details not included in Mark? I mean, it seems to indicate that there was some development of an initial story. And the Jesus resurrection story was simply par for the course in the society 2,000 years ago that loved its myths, including its resurrection myths. The pagan gods like Krishna, Osiris, and Dionysus were also supposedly crucified and then resurrected. In fact, if we look at the story of Krishna's life, Krishna was supposedly around 600 years before Christ, the story of Krishna is very similar to the one we find in the Gospels relating to Jesus. Krishna was born of a virgin, as was prophesied. Uh, three wise men were guided by a star to visit Krishna. Uh, Krishna was crucified and then resurrected. And Krishna was uh, part of the Trinity. Okay, now, so... Obviously, you know, the, these stories are not unique to Jesus. They were very commonplace at the time. And we know that early Christians used the resurrection story to try and convert pagans to Christianity by drawing parallels between the Christian beliefs and the pagan beliefs. Okay, in the second century, uh, the Christian theologian and church founder, Justin Martyr, told the Roman Emperor Hadrian that the risen Jesus was just like their pagan gods. In other words, the pagan gods had been born of a virgin and resurrected, and so was Jesus. Okay, so he's very keen to uh, emphasize the similarity between uh, the Jesus of Christianity and uh, the pagan gods. So in conclusion, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I'm looking forward to uh, Stuart's extraordinary evidence. I don't think he will provide it, though, unfortunately. Um, secondly, hearsay evidence is highly unreliable. 
for the reasons I've mentioned. Um, the evidence in the Gospels is not eyewitness testimony, it's hearsay. The resurrection story is riddled with inconsistencies and troubling details, and the story is shown signs of external tempering and myth development. Okay, and with that, I'll hand it back over to our moderator. All right, thanks so much for that. And looks like every of the audio and everything's good. So with that, I will kick it straight over to Stuart for your 12-minute opening. All right, thanks, guys. So I'm going to start right off the bat. There's 22 evidences for the empty tomb. They're so not necessarily verses. There's over 100 critically ascertained facts. So that's just for starters. To go on, though, a couple different issues. One, the, it doesn't matter how much evidence I give, how much information I give. It, it, it doesn't matter I mean, how much historical evidentiary weight is behind the resurrection. If there's no openness from an atheist or a secular person whatsoever, emotionally, intellectually, existentially, you name it, then there's no way they're going to come to the point of accepting these facts, the evidence. There's no way. And so I would ask any secular atheist person, wherever it is, to have a level of openness and willingness to truly hear out the evidence because so many people are just closed to it. I had a discussion last week with Richard Bauckham, who's considered the authority of the New Testament in the world right now. He's out of the UK. And it was fascinating to listen to him talk about how so many people today don't can't really grapple with the fact when it comes to faith on top of the evidence. So frequently people will just say, okay, let's look at the evidence here, just like any other raw historical fact where there's potential evidence behind it and we're going to accept it. Instead, this is, no, this is a one-off and this thing either happened and Christians are correct and there is eternal life or this thing just did not happen. And it's embarrassing. And so that's why in Acts chapter 17, Paul goes on and on about we who are Christians are to be pitied the most if the resurrection did not occur. That's why I disagree with so many Christians who say, oh, you know, being a Christian, you, it's just, it's helpful. It gives me some hope in this life. And everything's metaphorical, the cross, you know, dying, resurrecting. It's all nice and nice fluffy stuff. And, but no, Paul would say we are to be pitied most. It's, it's a joke. We would, I, I totally agree with uh, atheists. I'm debating tomorrow morning, Peter Atkins, who's the top chemist in Oxford. And he basically says, you know, we need to squash those who are religious. He takes kind of a Richard Dawkins approach. Squash them. And by the way, if you want to watch that debate, it's on the Give Me an Answer YouTube channel. We need to squash them and understand that science and scientism takes over. And if we have any understanding and usher God into the equation, then we are pushing science out. So with that, understanding that we at least have to be open to being convinced that this thing happened. No historian, again, would go to the stake for events that are trivial in any way. As a historian, there, there must be faith added to it. So if you look at, for example, Abraham Lincoln, there was a story out there, a conspiracy theory that when his body was being taken by train to Springfield, Illinois, after he was assassinated, that his body disappeared miraculously. Now, obviously, there weren't too many eyewitnesses to that. We consider it a joke. It probably didn't really occur, correct? We, we know where his tomb is, his burial was in Springfield, Illinois. Followed with that, 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is way more evidence behind it, way more eyewitness testimony, and I'll get to a lot of that in a second here. But stay with that illustration with Abe Lincoln for a second. I get a lot of inspiration from the Gettysburg Address. I think it's fascinating, it's interesting, but there's nothing in me again that wants to somehow go to the state or take a bullet for the inspiration I get from the Gettysburg Address, nor do I get some type of eternal hope and security. The Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ has left now on this earth with us, and we live in a very spiritually saturated world here in the West, I would say it's decreasing in a way, but if you travel to Haiti, to Africa, to Latin America, the vast majority of the world is still very spiritual. So the idea of having a Holy Spirit in us is not that crazy, unless you're from a very materialistic society, then it kind of becomes a joke. But you could say 90% of the world does not view the spiritual realm as a joke. No, 87% of people in the world still believe that there is a God, and that sets the tone for them when it comes to believing in a spirit. And so we believe we have the Holy Spirit as Christians based off of the resurrection. Now, on the heels of these couple of points, when I got married, I looked at the evidence that my wife would be a good wife. And she looked at the evidence of perhaps whether I'd be a good husband or not. The evidence is still, the verdict is still out on that. But when it comes to my wife, I looked at everything on paper. I spent over a year with her in terms of dating and engagement. But it didn't matter how much evidence I could collect, and it didn't matter what was on paper. I had to make the leap, the leap of faith, to marry her and to get confirmation then on whether she truly was a good wife or not. Fortunately, I really lucked out. She's a fantastic wife. Yes, we all mess up, but it's, it's so clear, it's, it's scary. And so for a guy like the Inquisitor or other atheists, see, it's so easy just to, to have this kind of aloof, kind of Monday morning quarterbacking where I'm just picking and choosing what details potentially stack up while others don't. And then this extraordinary evidence with extraordinary claims. I mean, I've heard that a lot lately. I think it's a total joke, to be quite honest. Uh, a lot of scholars have been debunking that recently. One way of, one scholar said it's just such a subjective thing. It's a spectrum of subjectivity. And it's, it should not even be debated over. Another scholar said, well, think about it in this way. There is a level of minor pieces of evidence that can eventually get to the point of extraordinary evidence. So we could say the hypothesis for the resurrection to actually have occurred, there are a bunch of minor pieces of evidence. So we have here 22 evidences for the empty tomb, over 100 critically ascertained facts from the critics based off of all these lines of evidence that we can say are minor. Sure, I'll, I'll grant the inquisitor that, although I don't think they're minor. They eventually get to the point of, yes, we could say this is extraordinary evidence. So those are two ways that many academics handle this whole extraordinary evidence, extraordinary claims, garbage. Um, so my next point, though, would be that if Jesus rose from the dead, your discomfort, perhaps, and I was on here debating not too long ago, the discomfort you have over whether Jonah spent the night in a whale or a few nights in a whale, or whether God wiped out the Amalekites, or the Canaanites, women, children, you name it, all of those things go away. So if any Christian wins any debate over the resurrection and someone accepts it intellectually as credible and existentially, emotionally as satisfying, which I think you need both of those to, an ex to really accept a worldview, then you can do away with all these other problems in the Bible. They truly do not matter. So this thing happened and everything in the Bible is true and the Christian worldview is completely true or this thing didn't happen and then why even worry about these other minor issues?
I don't think we're going to be going there because that's a whole other debate, but it's something to think about. So my first point would be in considering the resurrection, this whole hypothesis and accepting the Christian worldview would be you have to presuppose that there is a God before even having this discussion or debate. I don't believe philosophically that there is a God. There's no point in having this because I know naturalistically that no one is raised from the dead. When someone dies, they remain dead. That's obvious to all. Uh, secondly, I'm, I'm not even going to touch on, say, the 15 plus external sources we have for the evidence of Jesus. I believe that the Inquisitor, again, that's not the debate, uh, as well as myself, we accept, we accept, I hope, that Jesus was at the very least a historical figure. Uh, thirdly, minimal facts. Many different scholars have put out all different types of minimal facts, whether it's four, six, 15, 50. The four that I would go by are one, after his crucifixion, Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a well-known tomb. Fact number two, on the Sunday after the crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of women followers who, according to, you know, we could say Josephus, were hysterical. Uh, three, on separate occasions and under diverse circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. So the very skeptical German New Testament critic, Jörg Ludmann, declares that it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. That's not a Christian scholar. And in fact, number four, the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead, despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. That's why I'm going to disagree strongly with that one point that the Inquisitor stated earlier about the superstitious culture, especially when it comes to Jews. So, um, just to continue and wrap up here, Joseph of Arimathea certainly existed. Even secular scholars would say that. And it was his tomb most likely. And so there's, it's very likely that Jesus's corpse was placed in that very tomb. Um, we talked about on Sunday after crucifixion, Jesus was found risen by women. If the burial was correct, then it would be known to Jew and Christian alike. In that case, so long as a corpse lay interred in a tomb, the explosive growth of Christianity would never have occurred. Never. Mark's passion narrative ended with the story of the empty tomb. The Inquisitor says it's problematic because it was added later. Okay, well, then what about the other gospel independent testimonies? Matthew and John rely on independent sources of this empty tomb. Jesus' sermons. How about that? The Inquisitor didn't touch on his sermons in Acts. Um, how about the early... Creeds, yes, they came later. You think of Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. So Nicene was, what, 325, Apostles 395. Uh, early creeds early on. So often when I hear atheists be like, oh, you Christians can't, you know, you don't even know what you believe. You can't agree with anybody. There's 3,300 nominations, etc. No, just go back to the early creeds. Go back to Jesus' early sermons. Go back to Paul's creeds, for example. We're going to get to that in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, and then Philippians 2 and Colossians. So, um, then, the stories, this is a, a very good one. The stories lack embellishment and theological interpretation. So we get in the Gnostic Gospels, you know, you get Dan Brown, you get these other scholars who really blew people's minds. I remember a close friend of mine gave up his Christian faith because of the Da Vinci Code. And then he came back to the Christian faith a few years later once he realized that Dan Brown's original statement of all things in this book are factual wasn't true. The Inquisitor's point is a case in point, which is, no, the, these Gospels were not written so much later with tremendous embellishment. No, they're very simple 
concise, clear, and to the point without any type of apologetical commentary, theological fluff, or embellishment. That's a crucial point to remember. Okay, um, Mark's story is evidence of a primitive time and a place free of this theological kind of mumbo jumbo. So the earliest Jewish polemic presupposes an empty tomb as well. Think about Matthew chapter 28. We find a Christian attempt to refute the earliest Christian polemic against the resurrection, Jewish one. The disciples stole away his body is the earliest Jewish response to the proclamation of the resurrection was itself a way to explain why the body was missing. So adversaries, adversaries of the movement uh, supports the historicity, obviously, of the early tomb. So Jakob Kramer, by far the most biblical, uh, biblically well-known kind of exegete, he holds firmly by far the evidence concerning this empty tomb. And then my final point would be the historian C.B. McCullough. He lists six tests which historians use in determining the best explanation for given historical facts. So the hypothesis, God raised Jesus from the dead, passes all these tests. What are they? It has great explanatory scope. Explanatory scope is huge. How wide is it? What are all the details? What are all the facts that we can fully accept? Great explanatory power. So how does how do they explain not just the evidence, but also the facts truly well? Um, it is plausible given historical context. So Jesus' life and his claims. Clearly, we have some great context where Jesus lived, was born. Obviously, his early life, we don't have a lot on, but then his ministry from the age of 30 to 33, roughly. We know exactly what occurred. The archaeology, the history, the context, the geography even stacks up quite well. Not perfect, but quite well. It's not ad hoc or contrived. There's only one additional hypothesis, which is that God exists, back to my earliest point, which can be established by the arguments of natural theology, for example. And then it is in accord with accepted beliefs at the time. I fully accept the belief that people don't rise naturally from the dead. But this was obviously the belief that the early Christians came to espouse. So number six, far, it far outstrips any rival theories, too. Um, you could say there is well under 25%, especially in the last 25 years, of secular scholars who have even brought up a naturalistic theory. They've just given up. So whether it's the swim theory, whether it's the wrong tomb theory, whether it's Jesus had this doppelganger hanging out, any of those naturalistic theories have really been written off. They're, they're kind of off the table. That is about my my intro there thanks okay thanks so okay, much for that thanks so much for that um, um look it seems like we got an echo does somebody have the uh stream pulled up all right no. <clears throat> all right all right and with that we'll jump straight over to the rebuttal period um if anybody in the chat has a question for the q a just tag me if you're just coming in uh it's converse contender you'll see me in the live chat just send me over your your question and i'll ask it in the q a section and um if you would um we'll go ahead and start with your um rebuttal do you need a screen share uh yeah all right Let me hang do. on one sec and i'll get it pulled up for you okay Thank <laughs> you. 
Okay, you're good to go. All right. Um, well, as my uh, screen share is up right now, I'll just uh, tackle uh, one of the points, first of all, that was uh, in Stuart's opening statement, and that was about uh, Paul's testament, testimony. Um, so, yeah, um, Paul was the earliest uh, person to write about Jesus. He was writing about 20 years after Jesus had died. Um, Paul never claimed that he met Jesus in the flesh. He only met him in visions. Um, Paul said remarkably little about Jesus' life, uh, but he did make claims about uh, the resurrected Jesus. Um, so, for example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul said that he and 500 and more others had seen the resurrected Jesus in visions. Um, now, unfortunately, we only have Paul's word for this. We don't have uh, 500 plus testimonies. Uh, so what we really need to do is consider, well, you know, is Paul a reliable person? Uh, some atheists might say, well, you know, it seems Paul was delusional, right? He was seeing visions. Um, I, I'm actually going to be less charitable than that. I think Paul is a dishonest person. And I'm going to explain why. Okay, so the first reason why I think Paul is dishonest is that if you look at his writings, his writings provide evidence of him being less than honest. Um, so remember that Paul was trying to promote Christianity, right? In particular, he was trying to promote his own brand of Christianity over other versions of Christianity uh, that were becoming popular. Uh, faith, right? He wanted. Uh, I'm sorry, we lost you there for one second. If you just start that sentence over. Okay. All right. So, uh, Paul mis misquoted Isaiah in order to denigrate the Jewish faith, um, and that was because he was trying to make his brand of Christianity more appealing uh, to the Gentiles. So we can see this if we look at what, what Paul wrote in Romans chapter nine, verse thirty-three, and compare it with what Paul was claiming. Uh, to be quoting uh, from Isaiah. Okay, so in Isaiah, uh, it says, Behold. I'm sorry, we. I precious, precious. Yeah. Sorry, you're cutting out a little bit. You, it, Isaiah said, Behold, and then it cut it out. Start that one. Okay, so but Isaiah said, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious, precious cornerstone. A sure foundation. Now, how did Paul decide to quote this? Paul said, as it is written. Right? So he's claiming to have quoted it. He said, behold, I lay in Zion. Right? So the first five words are the same. But then he changed the meaning. He said, Zion is a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Okay? So this is an example of Paul being less than honest. He's claiming to be quoting from the Old Testament scriptures, but he actually changed the wording uh, in order to promote his own message. Now, I'm not trying to say that Paul didn't have the right to um, promote his own message. If he wanted to create a new religion, that's fine. Uh, but he did so dishonestly because he was claiming to be quoting from the Jewish scriptures. Now, of course, Paul had his critics among the Jews, right? They, they were not too happy uh, about Paul uh, doing this. So how did he respond? Well, if you look at Romans chapter 3, verse 7, it's very interesting. Because Paul doesn't deny being a liar. When the critics accused him of lying, he didn't say, no, I'm not a liar. What he said is as follows. He said, for if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, 
Why yet am I also judged as a sinner? So he's not denying telling lies. What he's saying is that his lies are not sinful if they help to abound the glory of God. Right? Notice the if here is if the lie abounds the glory of God. It's not if I am lying. All right? uh, so anyway, that's, that's one of my points, which is... Uh, it's, that's one of my points that's uh, related to what Stuart had to say about the Apostle Paul. Okay, um, some of the other points. All right, uh, he made a lot, but uh, not very many that were actually substantiated, is what I found. So he said that there were 22 pieces of evidence for an empty tomb. I mean, to be honest with you, I don't care if there's an empty tomb or not. That's not the subject of tonight's debate. The subject is, was Jesus resurrected? I mean, there can be an empty tomb for all sorts of reasons. An empty tomb does not imply that somebody is resurrected. It's consistent with somebody being resurrected, but it's consistent with many, many other possible explanations. Okay, so Stuart said he had two, 22 pieces of evidence that the tomb was empty. I don't know what those pieces of evidence are. I don't think outside of the New Testament there were any from the first century. Uh, but even if he was able to come up with some such evidence, um, it really doesn't help his case. Right? An empty tomb is not proof of a resurrection. Um, he says you need faith. And he also said, you know, this isn't a one-off. Okay. Um, you know, th th this, is, this is something that, you know, you, you just kind of like have to believe. Um, well, you know, I mean, people in any religion can make that case. Muslims can make that case about Muhammad riding a horse uh, up to heaven on Burak. Right? You just got to accept it, my friend. You got to have faith. If you don't have faith, well, I'm sorry, you know, uh, you're not going to heaven or Jannah in the case of uh, Islam. Uh, he mentioned the historian Abraham Lincoln. He could have also mentioned Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley just died in 1977. Uh, and some of his fans, Elvis Presley fans, just uh, thought that they've seen him many times since then. They've even set up a website called the Elvis Presley um, Sight Seeing Society. Uh, they've claimed that Elvis was an extra in the Home Alone movie. Okay. Um, so, you know, these uh, mythological beliefs are not exactly unique to uh, 2,000 years ago. Um, he said, Stuart's claim that there's eyewitness testimony, okay? Well, I want to hear what that eyewitness testimony is, okay? That was a, an extraordinary claim. He's, Stuart said 90% of people in the world do not think that the spiritual world is a joke. He said 90% of people in the world believe in God. That is just a lie, Stuart. I don't know how you can say that. I lived in China for eight years. There are more than a billion people in China. And I can promise you the vast majority of them do not believe in God. Uh, and that's not even counting all of the European countries in which atheists are a majority. Um, he said that I was picking and choosing from the scriptures. Well, I'm only doing what Christians do, right? I mean, when the scriptures contain stories of... Um, uh, God telling the Israelites that they could take uh, prisoners of war as slaves uh, and rape virgin girls. You know, most Christians will decide not to um, accept those stories, right? They don't live their life by those stories. So they're also picking and choosing. Uh, Stuart said he had 100 critically acclaimed facts. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't hear one. He did have 12 minutes to give us one or two. 
Um, again, he said that it's necessary to presuppose that there's a God. But again, you know, Muslims can say the same. It's necessary for them to presuppose there's a God in order to believe their supernatural stories like Muhammad riding a horse up to heaven. Uh, he said there were 15 external sources. Uh, I don't know what those external sources are, but he didn't mention that they were from the first century. So if he has external sources from the first century, please let us know what they were. Uh, he said that Josephus claimed that the women were hysterical. I don't know of any writings in Josephus that talk about that. I'm fairly familiar with antiquities of the Jews. Um, he said that the people living uh, 2,000 years, or Jesus' followers, uh, had every disposition to the contrary not to believe in the resurrection. Well, I provided several examples in my opening statement. I provided six examples of people in the Bible believing in other resurrection stories. So to say that they have a predisposition to the contrary, that's just an assertion, Stuart. You, you didn't provide me with any evidence. Um, he, Stuart said that I didn't touch upon any of Jesus' sermons. Well, unless he's talking about the sermons that Jesus gave after he died, I, I just don't see what the relevance is. Uh, how did Jesus' sermons help us know whether or not he was resurrected? Uh, he said that all the Gospels were very simple. They don't contain any theological fluff. Uh, I mean, I'm just really scratching my head on that one. Have you read the Gospel of John? Seriously? And it contains no theological fluff. Really? Inquisitor, would if, if you, sorry, uh, if you would wrap, wrap up your, uh, your rebuttal. Sure, yeah. So I, my final point is he said um, that, you know, the resurrection story provides us with lots of explanatory scope and power. Well, of course, I mean, if, you, if you're going to rely on making supernatural claims, you can explain anything, right? You can explain the sun rising in the morning and setting at night. Um, the question is, are the explanations true? not whether they have power. I'm done. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks so much for that. Uh, you guys, just so you know, for the people in the chat, I'm not taking exact time. So, like, if we have eight minutes and they go over, I'm not, like, stopping them right at eight minutes. I'm letting them just take, you know, a little bit of extra time if they need it, uh, just so everybody's aware. But um, And we'll kick it over to Stuart for your uh, eight-minute rebuttal. And uh, like I say, if you go over a little bit, that's fine. All right. Okay, so we'll start with God, right? So 34% of the world is Christian. It's interesting, you talked about China. You, I don't know if you lived in China or if you got the right China correct. There's 50 million Christians alone in China. It's going to be by far and away the most Christianized nation in the world within the next five to 10 years. Uh, the Washington Post just came out with an article about that. Pew Research talks about it. You know, you can even just Google. Just Google what percent of people believe in God. And, and these are low numbers right now because from Pew from 2018. So a 2013 poll by UPI, Harris, showed that three-quarters of the U.S. adults say they believe in God. Okay, Pew Research shows that 87, I didn't say 90%, I said 87, I said 90% you could say believe in a spiritual realm. So if you take in many Buddhists, for example, many Buddhists don't believe in God, but they still accept a very lively spiritual realm, you could say. So I, I, I would love to debate on whether the U.S. is getting more religious or less, more spiritual or less, more atheistic or less, more secular or less, or the world is. That's, that's right out my wheelhouse. I'd, I'd love to. We could set that up. Um, 
superstitious people in that time. That is way off when it comes to the Jews. Sure, there were absolutely superstitious people in that time. There are many superstitious people in this time. If you're saying that people perhaps have lower IQ, which maybe you're not saying during that time period, I sure hope you're not saying because that would be chronological snobbery, which many academics talk about. And we are no smarter than people in that primitive era, IQ-wise. The Jews, and you could say this, see, <laughs> scholars who are Christians and secular, this is my point over and over again. That, that was why the German scholar I, I quoted as well talked about how the Jews would have way more, way more hoops to jump through than us in our scientific age to believe actually that Jesus would have been risen from the dead by God. Why? Well, first of all, they believed in a potential resurrection, which was at the very end of time. It was not done by a man in the middle of history, an individual. No, it was going to be every single person was going to be resurrected. The idea of God becoming man and all of a sudden dying hideously in the most painful, excruciating way possible on a cross was a complete joke. Jews would be the last people on the planet then to have ever believed that. So wipe, wipe that out of your mind. Um, late dating of the New Testament Gospels. You, you can go talk to your friend Bart Ehrman. Um, we've debated Bart Ehrman before. He is by far and away the, the top academic when it comes to the, the, really the dating of New Testament Gospels. And your numbers are way too late. I mean, you put John at 100 A.D., Okay, that's, that's the most extreme anybody has ever gone, my mind. The most extreme I've seen is 90, but Ehrman would say, even back it up, more so than that. So you get, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, 15 to 20 years, earliest manuscripts, after the crucifixion itself. And then you get that creed in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, what I received, I've passed on to you as of first importance that Jesus Christ lived, died, that he appeared to, the 12, James, the 500, Peter, you name it. And that interesting word, received, I passed on to you, received, I passed on to you, goes back to Galatians, when in Jerusalem you have Paul having met up, scholars will say, with Peter, um, with John, most, most likely James as well. In that meeting, that's when he received that very creed, which scholars would say you can take that creed all the way back to a couple years. Many would say even just a couple months after Jesus's crucifixion. Crucial to note. And so the Gospels I typically put at and most scholars would put at anywhere between 30 to 60. You quote John. John would be the last one. You're right on that. But I have never, no one says after 90 now, and many would say 90 is a very, very late date. So that's tremendously early. If you look at other manuscripts from other, you know, whether, whether it's the Gallic Wars, etc., typically it's hundreds, if not thousands, typically hundreds of years after the events themselves that we have manuscripts. And then if you want to go in that direction, you can talk also about the amount of manuscripts. We're approaching 6,000 manuscripts now versus the Gallic Wars and others, the Iliad and others, where the amount of manuscripts is in the hundreds or less. So crucial to think through. You talked about Luke chapter 24. Interesting how you went there, because I actually was going to use that as attestation, potentially even more evidence for 
the resurrection or just the credibility of the Gospels. I think that's kind of where you were going with that. And I would highly disagree with you about the empty tomb. Every resurrection debate I've been in, the empty tomb comes up. I, I don't know how that's a separate debate. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure where you're going with that. Luke 24, Jesus' own followers did not recognize him. Yes, that's called embarrassing details. You have embarrassing de- details throughout the Gospels. Um, you have it, and gratuitous details. So gratuitous would just be excessive. Um, for example, when Jesus is eating on the beach after he is resurrected, and it's 153 fish, or when he meets the disciples, and he actually gives the amount of feet he is away from the boat, or when he's asleep on the boat, Luke chapter 8, it talks about the cushion that he's laying on. There are endless amounts of details that are so excessive, it's scary, and that, that's why literary critics, especially C.S. Lewis, said that this is not written as fiction. It's written as history. People from that time period who supposedly were superstitious idiots, according to you, knew exactly the difference between fiction and history. They saw it as history. And any historian today would say it's written as history. So finishing on Luke 24, if you noticed, only one of the disciples that Jesus has a conversation with there is named, and that's Cleopas. And so Richard Bauckham, the top New Testament scholar in the world today, would say that that gives evidence for Cleopas, or Cleopas, actually having been known, widely known. And this was a typical way of distinguishing and knowing if something occurred, is if the well-known person who people would have known and said, oh, okay, we can go check with Cleopas if this truly happened, was mentioned. So it's fascinating how the other disciple didn't even, really wasn't even mentioned at all. But you brought up more so the followers didn't recognize him. Okay, that's embarrassing. Why in the world wouldn't Luke take that out then? See, scholars would say that's a tremendously embarrassing detail, giving credence to and evidence for this thing having actually happened. Because why wouldn't they gloss over that later on? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, etc. No, and then it talks about how their hearts burned within them. So they didn't recognize him, but then, then they had this incredible experience. And that gets back to my original points on the experience is so crucial emotionally, existentially, when it comes to having faith. It's not just this intellect. And I'm not presupposing. That was your next point. Presupposing. Okay, again, every resurrection debate, you do have, and any miracle debate, you have to presuppose, you have to start with. And it's, again, it's not just presupposing in the sense of, oh, blind, gullible faith. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Presupposing in the sense of, if we, if I am going to accept a miracle, or certainly a resurrection, I am going to have to presuppose that God exists. Doesn't mean I don't give evidence for God truly existing. I better not do that. I'd be an idiot to do that, right? So that's not what I was saying whatsoever. Um, what else did you bring up? So, I, you know, I just have to believe this thing. I just have to believe this thing. I, I never said that. And let's get what belief is truly cleared up. Acts 17, verse 31. We can use that as an example. Pistis. Pistis is what belief and faith is. That's the Greek term. And if you look there, what Paul says, um, or excuse me, Luke, you clearly have pistis being assurance. Assurance in the resurrection. Assurance in your salvation. Trust in God. It's way more so of a relationship. It gets back, really gets back to my original marriage illustration where it's, yes, you're looking at the evidence. Yes, you're looking at the facts, but then you have to make a decision to trust or not, to have that assurance or not. So that's believing. It's not this Mark Twain understanding of, you know, faith is, it begins where reason leaves off. Now, I would never say to buy into any worldview if that's kind of your dictum, just believing where reason 
leaves off. No, trust me, the Inquisitor, you have many, many beliefs that you just take and accept and, and don't even realize you're doing it. Um, so, and then finally, the last point, you, you brought up Islam. Okay, the Branch Davidians, you could bring up the Mormons, you, you could bring up any of these. It doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with the claim we're making tonight in terms of what the resurrection really did and how it's changed things. Because Islam, you have, you have radicals flying airplanes into buildings because they believe that that will give them assurance to go to paradise, assurance of their own salvation. Okay, the disciples, they weren't just doing that. They weren't just saying, oh, gosh, let me just go die. Let me just go throw myself into the lion's den so I can have assurance of my real salvation. No, instead, they claimed to have seen this risen Christ. That's why there was tremendous life change in people like Peter, the Christ denier, or James, his half-brother, who never believed him his entire life, pissed with him in the same toilet, still didn't believe him, but then died for his faith after Jesus rose from the dead. You have this tremendous life change because they were willing to die for what they claimed to have seen and experienced, rather than they would never have died for what they knew to be a lie. This wasn't a hoax. They were just covering it up. So that's the difference. It's a major one between your Islam juxtaposition. It, it couldn't be any more starkly different. And Stuart, if, if you would wrap up. Yeah, Glad Um So my final point on that is you can chart what occurred in terms of the vast expansion of the Christian faith throughout the Roman Empire. When I was over in Rome, 300,000 Christians died in that one Roman Colosseum within 150 years to 200 years for what they claimed to have been passed down to them by eyewitnesses who they knew. See, that's the craziest part about this whole thing. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, that creed that goes back to potentially months where Paul received it from Peter. That claim, what they received and passed on, that caught fire. And then all of a sudden you had hundreds, thousands of people coming to know Christ and throwing their lives away because they claimed to know him. That's all right. it. Thanks. All right. Thanks so much for that, Stuart. And um, we're going to go to the open discussion portion. But let me just say that um, we were going to do 50 minutes open discussion, but because I let both of the uh, contenders go a little bit long. Um, we're already at almost an hour, and we typically only go an hour and a half. We need at least 20 minutes for Q&A, so if it's okay with both of you guys, uh, is it is it cool if we do maybe 25 or 30 minutes of open discussion followed by Q&A? Yeah, it's cool with me. Awesome. Okay, so that's what we'll do. And just while we're in this open discussion, if you're just coming in, you can tag me with a question for the Q&A, and I'll ask it to one of the debaters. And if you're saying, hey, listen, I really like this guy. I want more. Well, you can have more because their links are in the description. But with that, I will kick it over to you guys for open discussion. Inquisitor, I'll just start with a question for you. How much evidence and what kind of evidence would you need to believe that the resurrection actually occurred? Well, to believe any extraordinary claim like that, I would need extraordinary evidence. Uh, so, I mean, I agree um, that that's never going to happen. Um, my point really in having this debate was to point out not only is the evidence not extraordinary, it's not even ordinary. Um, there are so many 
problems with the evidence um, that it it just all points to non-belief. I mean, I was a Christian. I was raised as a Christian. I was a Christian for 20 years. Um, And, you know, as Mark Twain said, the best cure for Christianity is reading the Bible. That's what I did. And that's why I became an atheist. Well, Mark Twain also had recurrent nightmares of a Bible on top of his chest, suffocating him to death every single night. So Mark Twain had some mental illness, but but no, I, I well, also that was probably think, caused by religion. I, maybe, maybe I'm a psychotherapist. We could talk about that. But it was what's interesting about that actually is the whole positive psychology movement started based off Christian beliefs. Sonia Luzhenborski, who started the positive psychology movement, said the quickest way to get happy and have a content life is to become religious. And so we, we could go down that whole path. That's a, I mean, meta-analysis shows that, that no, you're going to live much longer if you become quote unquote religious. So, but there is religiosity as a symptom when it comes to mental health disorder, but that's, that's religiosity as a symptom. That's why I believe a lot of the Pharisees probably were mentally unhealthy because they bought into my point there of Mark Twain with the Bible suffocating him. He totally misunderstood really what the point of scripture was. It's about grace. It's about being accepted through the cross, through the resurrection, that I'm approved, that I'm loved. And then I live out of that rather than what Mark Twain thought, which was I have to abide by all of these rules and it's suffocating. If I believe in that kind of religion, I would agree right with Mark Twain and with you. But that's not the kind of God I believe in. That's not the whole purpose of why Jesus died and rose from the dead. But extraordinary. So I'm not going to let you off the hook here with extraordinary evidence. That's too easy. You're moving the goalposts and it's tremendously subjective. You still haven't answered my question. What is the kind of evidence that you need in order to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Well, I would need very strong evidence to prove any supernatural claim. Okay. So what evidence? Well, uh, I mean, a video would be good. But there's videos, and there was a recent video last year of an African boy being raised from the dead in a village over in oh, Africa. That happened, did it? Are you saying no, that happened? But it was, he, was, he really, was he really resurrected? Do you believe it happened? According to what you just said on video. No, I didn't say I would believe it. I, you asked me what evidence I would need. Having seen the evidence, I would ne- then need to scrutinize the evidence to see if it's standing up. Okay, so video? So if Jesus had been raised from the dead and it was on video, you'd believe it? Well, look, I mean, let's make it simple. If God exists, why, he can just easily prove it to, him, to us in the sky, right? And he, could, he could bellow out right now, hey, Inquisitor, Jesus was resurrected. There you go. That would, that would convince me. And I would say to that, Blaise Pascal, the greatest mathematician who's ever lived, he said that. Well, no, he God wasn't the greatest mathematician that ever lived by any means. God but, has yeah. given us, well, okay, you can give me who you think it is. God has given us enough, enough evidence for those who have a heart who actually want to know him, to accept him, and those who don't truly want to know him or accept him as Lord. Not, he hasn't given enough evidence for them. And I think that's replete in Scripture as well. It, that, those are perfect examples that Jesus gives us in numerous places as well as yes, Paul. So you have to accept the Scripture in order to, to you know, accept the belief. You asked me what it would convince me. Scripture is not going to convince me because I see too many problems in the Scripture. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. So my whole, my whole hypothesis started with you have to believe that a God exists before you can even get to the resurrection. 
And so my whole point there is... And God can kill two birds with one stone. He can prove he exists and he can prove that Jesus is resurrected very simply by performing a supernatural event in the sky that okay, everyone so what's can proof? What's proof? Well, he could rearrange the stars in the sky to say Jesus was resurrected, as it That's says in the proof. Bible. That's not proof. Yes, it is. No. You asked you, you ask me, ask me what evidence I would need. You asked me what evidence I would need. I've just told you what evidence I would need. Now, if you don't think that that's proof, that's fine. Uh, evidently, the, the Gospels and uh, the writings of Paul are proof enough to you. I told you what evidence I would need, which is what your question was. Let's define proof. No, you asked me what evidence I needed. Proof is, one, empirically verifiable and two, obvious to all people. And so your definition right there of proof and, and everything being aligned in the stars, it's not empirically verifiable. Terrorists have been willing to die, not for what they believe to be a lie, right? That's what you said. You said that they wouldn't have died for what they knew to be a lie. I'm not claiming that Jesus' followers knew it was a lie, and I'm not claiming that the Muslims on 911 knew it was a lie. They were brainwashed. So who brainwashed them then? And how was that done? I mean, it's done all the time. There are religious cults everywhere. How, how were they brainwashed? I mean, look at, just, 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 just look at the history of religious cults. Look at ne Nex Nexium and other, and other such cults. I mean, you're not going to deny, sure, I mean, you're, you're a liberal modern Christian. You're surely not going to deny that uh, people are brainwashed through cults, are you? So your naturalistic explanation is that they were I didn't somehow, say my explanation was naturalistic. So that they were somehow brainwashed. Well, I mean, how else do you explain what brainwashing is? Well, so I think anyone who willingly... Soldiers in the Middle East. I think, I think if someone willingly dies for uh, a belief in something that they cannot prove, then, yeah, I think they're probably mentally ill. They're mentally ill. Okay. Um, Okay, so you. So I, think, I think the 911 terrorists, I would classify them as mentally ill. They committed suicide for what they believed in. Uh, I, I would class anyone who did the same. I would, I, you know, I would class the same uh, for all the other cults where you know, the followers have willingly uh, sacrificed their lives. I think that's tremendously, tremendously offensive for you to say. No, that. it's not tremendously it's offensive. What's offensive is it, you. One at a time, guys. Who have set, set, you know, really set Qurans on fire before? Who are mentally ill? They threw them down. You know, off, CNN picked up the story. Actually, they showed the video. They threw them down off of a house. This woman who was mentally ill, she accidentally, supposedly, burned a Quran, and then the entire thousands of people in the village came and beat her to death. And all said, "We believe in this ideology that this should be done." So you're calling millions of people mentally ill and you're calling a certain people group mentally ill that I probably no, I'm not I'm not I never said that I say I what I said what I said is that if somebody is willing to die for a supernatural belief then they're probably mentally ill I didn't say that all Muslims or all Christians are mentally ill you're you're creating a straw man there okay I don't know how I am but I'll, I'll believe you how Okay, so then how do you say, how did the resurrection occur then? You're saying there's zero evidence. It didn't occur. That's my whole point. So let, let me just start in by this, by saying this. Scholars today will say 
for ancient. Okay, can you you, you you you've done this throughout your opening statement and your rebuttal? Scholars will say, can you just actually cite evidence instead sure, of just sure. quoting sure. unnamed sources? I mean, you have misquoted Bart Ehrman t- uh, tonight already uh, in terms of the dating of the Gospels. Let, let's let's let him let's let him finish. Okay, so you want me to name them? So I talked about Richard Bauckham, talked about Gary Habermas, talked about William Lane Craig. <laughs> You're not seriously calling William Lane Craig a scholar, are you? Oh boy. Are you joking? Oh boy. The guy got his PhD from the University of Birmingham in theology. That's not a scholar for goodness sake. Oh my goodness. If you if you're gonna call people like that, okay, fine. I'll quote who Craig was quoting then. I don't care who Craig was quoting. Craig is a a well-renowned liar. I don't care. I don't care who you're quoting. I don't care which people you're quoting, who they quote. I I care about evidence. I've given evidence tonight. I've given evidence from the scriptures. Uh, You haven't rebutted any of those, by the way. Um, you haven't rebutted the inconsistencies that I discussed. You haven't rebutted the fact sure. that sure. Mark did that. not contain the, uh, stories about post-mortem appearances. You haven't discussed any of that. You just whitewash it. Absolutely. Here we go. Okay, so in the ancient Near East, and really in any type of ancient archaeological dig, if, if historians can find or archaeologists can find two sources – ancient sources, they consider that pater in terms of, okay, wow, we got something here. This thing really could have happened. We have in the Gospels, and if you include Paul as well, we have at least four sources. Many would say five, six, or seven. Stuart, you're being too stringent. And many of those I quoted already. And we have all the passion narratives in every single Gospel. And so you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you're exactly right. Not all of them were at the empty tomb. You have John and Peter racing each other. You have the three women. So the women, let's get to that one first in terms of contradictions. If you go to the scene of an accident and you're at that scene of the accident, if I was with my wife, for example, and we tell stories all the time, whether it's an accident or something else, my details are always different from my wife's. So just because one gospel writer will state that Mary Magdalene was there and never mentioned Joanna or the other Mary, mother of James, doesn't mean it's a contradiction from the other store source stating that all three were there. Very similar to your men and angels. The gospel writers and the early primitive people, according to you, would have understood that the men and the angels to have been the exact same. Now, one contradiction you could have brought up as well would be the, the stone rolled away. Because there's another contradiction there, I believe, is in Matthew, I think Matthew and Mark. Yeah, I only have five minutes. minutes. So one gospel, one gospel would say, here, go ahead and respond. I just said I only had 12 minutes. I, I've got, I could mention lots and lots of other contradictions. Oh, okay. Uh, which one did I not cover yet? Uh, what, the ones I mentioned or the ones I didn't have time to mention? I don't care. Okay, so here's one that I didn't mention in my opening statement. So when did Jesus ascend to heaven? Like the day? Yeah. I don't know the day. It's a good question. Okay, well, so if you look at the Bible, it's contradictory. Uh, The Gospel of Luke says that Jesus ascended to heaven on the first and only occasion he appeared to his disciples. 
In John, Jesus appeared to his disciples a second time, eight days after his first appearance. And then in Acts, we're told that Jesus ascended to heaven 40 days after his first appearance. So which of those stories is true? Did Jesus ascend to heaven the first time, as it says in Luke, or the second time he appeared, or was it 40 days after his first appearance? No, Orthodox Christian belief has always stated it's 40 days. Okay, well, it may be 40 days, but you can't, you, you, can't, you can't deny the contradiction between Luke and John. Luke, Luke and John? Yeah, Luke says that Jesus ascended to heaven on the first and only occasion he appeared to his disciples. John, that's Luke 24. Uh, John says that Jesus appeared to his disciples a second time, which was eight days after his first appearance. That's John chapter 20, verse 26. Okay. So you have the resurrection account, and then you have the ascension. Well, you so don't you have, have, different, have, you have different accounts. See, see, that gets back again. I don't. How is that you a contradiction? Just because their timetables are different on the resurrection, there it doesn't mean there's a direct contradiction to it. There can be differences, and I would think if they all had the exact same day, for example, in history, there would be clear collusion. See, it gets back to differences versus clear contradictions. I have never heard. <laughs> to use your word again, scholars, really go after that one as a clear contradiction. I don't care, I'm a scholar. I'm going after it. Refute me. I just did. You didn't. Mm-hmm. All you did was say, That's yeah, like they're the inconsistencies. It's like the stone being rolled away. Matthew and Mark, you could look at it as a contradiction, potentially. But one has, obviously Mark is minimized. It's just getting the raw bare bone details. It shortens everything. So it doesn't talk about the earthquake. When Matthew though, talks about the stone actually having been rolled away where Mark doesn't. So you could say that's a contradiction, but the earthquake came in Matthew and it doesn't come in Mark because Mark leaves out that detail. So it looks like a contradiction. Yeah. Okay, so, so, what, so why is it that we don't have any independent corroborating evidence for the claims in Matthew about an earthquake, about the solar eclipse, about um, the dead Jews being raised to life? I mean, these I mean, events would have been witnessed by lots and lots of people, people not, not just Jesus' followers. So it should have been so by historians. Historian. I'm sorry, uh, Stuart, I think we're getting an echo on your end. If you would, oh, um, mute, you would uh, mute whenever you're not talking. Whenever you're not talking. Yeah, yeah. Okay, perfect. Okay. All right, good to go. All right, go ahead, Stuart. Sorry about that. Sure. Yeah. Go ahead. You still um, it, I think it's because you're not using headphones, so that whenever we talk, it's coming through your computer, and we're hearing it back a little bit. Yeah, sure. Let me see if I can get someone. Okay. Cool. Cool. Sorry to interrupt. I just was like, I'm. You know, it's gonna be bad for the audience. Sure. No, absolutely. All right. All right, Quizzer. Fire away. Oh, okay. Um, so my question was, why was there no uh, corroborating independent evidence to support the claims in Matthew? Uh, Matthew made some wild claims that uh, if they were true, they ought to have been recorded by contemporary historians uh, because they would have been witnessed by many, many people. So, for example, a solar eclipse, uh, people being hundreds of people being raised from the tombs after the crucifixion and wandering around Jerusalem. These are events that should have been recorded by Jewish and Roman historians. Uh, these historians, uh, you know, we, we have 
lots and lots of uh, stories from these historians about uh, weird events occurring around, you know, in history, like uh, uh, co comets and things like that. Um, why is it that we don't have any such evidence? Externally, you're asking, right? Yeah, externally. Well, only Matthew mentions this. It's not men mentioned in uh, Mark, right? Right. Um, hey, is the, is the echo better? I'm getting a little. Yeah, you're good. Okay. We do have external evidence for the great earthquake. It's only one source. I'm not sure what the source is. But there is, there's definitely external evidence for that. Somebody, so what happened on Golgotha, obviously. Now, we don't have evidence that necessarily the curtain was torn in two. There, there's, there's many different things that we don't have specific evidence. No, I wasn't asking for evidence of a curtain. I was asking for evidence of a solar eclipse and sure. evidence for uh, Jews being raised from their tombs. Sure. The second one, there are no, there's no external evidence that I know of. The first one, there is. I am not certain what that is right now. But there's definitely external evidence for it. I've read it before. So let's go back to the brainwashing. Well, do, I, do I get a question? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so you, you, you said earlier that, um, you know, if, if historians can find two ancient sources, then it's like, you know, gold dust. I, correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but I'm trying to remember what you said. Paper, yeah. um, but you said that, you know, if historians can find two ancient sources, then, you know, they're good. I mean, that's true, but only if those sources are making ordinary claims, right? The historians do not say, oh, well, there are two sources here making uh, supernatural claims, therefore we're good. They just don't. So you, you, you're making a false equivalence between what historians do and what you would like them to do. Which is what exactly? Flex that out more? What historians do is they look at ancient sources, and if those sources make ordinary claims, then and those claims are corroborated in two or more uh, sources, then they're good, right? You know, they say, okay, this probably happened. What historians don't do is find multiple sources of, for example, Muhammad riding a horse to heaven, and then saying, oh, well, it's in multiple hadiths, it must have happened. That's not what historians do. Mm-hmm. So for you to say, you know, that what you're doing is, you know, when you're claiming, you know, the four sources of the Gospels, or it's actually three, really, because Mark doesn't count, as I've explained already. What about Paul? And, and Paul. Well, I've already explained that Paul was a liar. I mean, we, we can get on to that next. How, if you how do you, based off of what, Romans 3, 7, you say he's a liar and misquoting supposedly Isaiah? Come on. Yeah. Paul was looked at as an incredible rhetorician and a mind that there's never been a mind like him before, historically speaking. I don't care if he's a rhetorician. What I care about is him saying that he is quoting the um, Jewish scriptures as they are written. That's what it says in Romans 9.33. Paul writes, as it is written. The first five words are exactly the same as Isaiah. Behold, I lay in Zion. But then he changes Isaiah, Isaiah, where Isaiah said that Israel is a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious, precious cornerstone. He changes that. He says that Israel is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Okay? Mm. So he says, as it is written, that is a lie. Now, it may be a small lie. You, you can say, well, okay, but it is a lie. It is in the Bible. And I, you know, I have difficulty 
believing a claim to somebody who I know in the past has told lies. So the commentators will talk about how Israel in that sense, Jerusalem, Zion, in that sense, it's getting at the mercurial nature of it in terms of there's going to be great times of victory and then great times of defeat as well as terrible actions and deeds on the part. And that's why they often have to repent. And so yes, there's tremendously positive and negative comments on Zion that both Isaiah and Paul make. To say that he's outright lying there is a complete joke. No, it's and not I would a say joke. Paul, 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 not I just joke. It's, it's Paul, not a joke because he claimed to be quoting Isaiah. He did not yeah. he did not quote Isaiah. He completely changed the meaning of Isaiah because Isaiah was saying that Zion is a foundation stone, a tried stone, whereas Paul said that Zion is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. That is not... So you're going to take half a verse of Paul quoting Isaiah and say that he was a liar his entire life, right? I'm not saying he was a liar. I'm not, I'm not saying he lied in everything. I'm saying, I, I'm saying I have one example of Paul telling a lie, right? That's, that's only my claim. I'm not saying he lied in everything he said his entire life. What I'm saying is that if we have a man who says he was experiencing visions... And we have evidence, one piece of evidence that he was dishonest. I have a trouble believing the testimony of such a person, especially when there's no corroborating evidence. Hey, hey guys, uh, real quick, um, it, let's try and wrap this up over the next maybe five minutes or so, and then I'm going to give each of you two to five minutes to give like a closing statement, uh, just kind of to wrap up and then we're going to q a because we just got so many questions already uh that way we can get to them and so yeah so inquisitor who who brainwashed the disciples or the the, the women were they hysterical is it just because they were women who brainwashed all of them and oh, are you saying on. this was a succession of brainwashing? Listen, listen i'm an atheist i'm not the kind of person that is going to um speak negatively of women i leave that to your bible oh my bible yeah, your Bible. Your, your Bible is the one that's saying the it's women should not be allowed so to. Now you're, to now you're completely skirting the question. No, who I'm brainwashed not. them? How were they brainwashed? I don't know. I don't know who now brainwashed them. It's a I terrible argument. I, Joke of an argument. Let's no, get real. No, it's, Give how, me a real argument. An argument. It's horrible. It's a joke. I've never even heard it. There's brainwashing. It's just like children soldiers over over in the Middle East, or it's like the British Davidians. You know, all these religious uprisings. They're, they're just That's brainwashed. Right. Brainwashed. Okay, you have so no you, theory. You have no hypothesis for how they're think, brainwashed. Do you think the one, one at a time, leap. guys? One at a time. Gigantic leap, my friend. It's a joke. This is why this is your first debate. Obviously. Do you think the nine one one terrorists were brainwashed? Yes or no? No. I mean, yes. Brainwashed. Define brainwash for me. You mean like like they were children's soldiers and they were just raised in that kind of I way? I mean, they, they had their, their critical thinking had been um, affected by indoctrination. That's what I mean by brainwashing. They bought into an ideology that was tremendously violent that has to yeah. do with killing the infidel. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So they That's were the brainwashed. They so still have free will. So you're saying they were brainwashed? It depends how you are defining brainwashed. Well, I'm, I'm, the way I define it, they were brainwashed. Okay, so the disciples then were all brainwashed. How were they brainwashed? 
Why you? No, you. Not only I witness this brain fog. You honestly, you're skirting the entire debate topic. That's the no, funny no. thing, and you're trying to get me on small externals. Tell me how I don't think all lying is a small external. I haven't, even, I haven't even got onto Matthew's oh, I, lying. A half a verse quoting the Old Testament. I haven't even you got onto Matthew's lying. I mean, I'm sorry, you know, I'm How sorry. To, I'm sorry. It's hey, sir, I'm not going on to any other topic or any other line of thinking until you begin to tell me, how are they brainwashed? How did that work? How did that look? I didn't say they were brainwashed. I said a more likely explanation for why they were willing to allow themselves to be killed for their religious beliefs is that they were brainwashed because we see this all the time. We see cults all the time where people are willing to lay down their lives okay, for what they have been taught about God and the supernatural, the spiritual world, call it what you will. So we see this all the time. That's a huge exaggeration of one. But even more importantly... No, I mean, all again, the time, I think there's never been a time in history without any The brainwashing claim does not hold water whatsoever because it gets back to these eyewitnesses claimed to have seen and encountered something, not just the three women, not just the disciples, not just James, not just Paul, not just Peter, well over 500 that you could go and talk to yourself, Paul said. No. Seem to have seen and experienced the risen the reason, Lord who actually went through walls, and yet he was also physical. So it wasn't a matter of, the reason let's just brainwash these people and put guns in their hands and let them fly planes into buildings. It could not have been any more different. They would have been dying for what they knew to be a lie, vastly different than how ISIS operates today. Okay, so what you said before was that Jesus' followers wouldn't have been prepared to die for what they knew to be lie, a lie. And you just repeated that exact wording again, what they knew to be a lie. What I said was, it's not necessarily the case that they knew it to be a lie. For example, they could have been brainwashed. And then I gave the example of other religious cults where saying? people have been brainwashed and have been willing to die. So how yeah, I'm surprised that you're disputing this. I mean, it's, it's pretty... I've never heard of I've heard hallucination theory. I've heard swoon theory. I've heard wrong tomb theory. I, I have never heard the brainwashing theory. I do agree with you. There are many religious people who get brainwashed, but I have never been exposed to any theory in terms of brainwashing of the earliest eyewitnesses. Okay, well, I'm sorry. Are you guys okay with moving to closings? Um, just so we can get to all these questions, because we do have a lot. Um, I mean, I'm actually happy to give over the time to Q&A if you want. I mean, okay. I think that might be more productive. Otherwise, I mean, if, if that's what Stuart wants as well. Yeah, it's fine. Okay, cool, cool. So you guys are good to just move straight into Q&A then? Sure. All right, perfect. All right, yeah, that way we can get to all of the questions because we did have a lot. All right, so if I'll try and keep an eye on the chat in case we have another come in, um, but uh, I may not be able to get to it at this point. So uh, I'm going to start with the Super Chats first, and then we'll, we'll move on to the, uh, the other questions that were asked. All right, our first Super Chat comes in from $5 from Craig Connors. says, this is like watching paint dry. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. We've got to get him on. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, all right. So our second he's super He's still willing to pay for the super chat. Yeah, exactly. He's still, he's still watching. Um, he likes paint drawing. But uh, our super uh, super chat, our next one comes from Stupid Horror Energy for $5. It says, for Stuart, 
If I told you I took the bus to work but flew on a unicorn back home, which claim would you need more evidence to believe? Probably the unicorn. Although we debate about unicorns in philosophy class. But that gets at something. Can I have 30 seconds on this? Go ahead. So that would get at my next point. If you want to take something supernatural and talk about extraordinary claims, look at near-death experiences. There are 30 million now people who make these claims to have had NDEs in Europe, in the U.S., in India and China. 30 million. So that's a lot of unicorns because I would say – a lot of people would say near-death experiences. Huh, that's a joke. It's kind of like unicorns. I don't know. I mean there's – at a Duke University, there's a doctor who's saying that there's over 300 peer-reviewed articles of people actually having had near-death experiences that doctors and nurses have encountered themselves and come back up. So the unicorn piece is – sure, that gets back to the spiritual realm. We live in a materialistic scientific uh, era and especially location. And so it's hard to believe in the spiritual. But no, I do not believe in unicorns. All right. Thanks so much for that. Next, Super Chat. Two CAs. I think that – is that Canadian dollars? I'm not sure. Two CAs from Decepticons <laughs> Forever says a 2,000-year-old game of telephone is not evidence. Care to respond to that? It wasn't really a question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would say oral tradition versus eyewitness testimony. Oral tradition, he's exactly right. If it is oral tradition and it was, say, hundred like the Gnostic Gospels, hundreds of years after, most likely it is legend because telephone game would have occurred. But eyewitness testimony has much more to do with you can trace the dates back to so close within the crucifixion itself to when the documents were written. Oral culture it would have made no sense if the documents had been written down a matter of even, say, years, just a couple of years after the report of what happened occurred. It was an oral culture that it took 15 years until it started to get written down, at least in First Corinthians. That's pretty insane. So people who talk about telephone tag, they don't know the oral culture well enough. They don't know oral tradition, and they don't know eyewitness testimony. All right. Thanks so much. we got a super chat for... Uh, from Sidrafredo, sorry, Sidrafredo Sarabia. It's a tongue twister. Sidrafredo, Sidrafredo Sarabia, five dollars says, Inquisitor, do you think any time in medical science there's been a situation when someone pronounced death came back to life was different in comparing? Uh, I think that, I think there can be mistakes in uh, pronouncing people dead. Yeah, so I think somebody could be pronounced dead, but actually they're not dead, and actually they're alive. All right, thanks so much for that. Our next super chat is for. I don't alive. Sorry. Uh, sorry, I was just saying I don't believe anyone has actually died and come back to life. Okay. So, but people, doctors can make mistakes in pronouncements for sure. All right, Mike Billard's $5 Super Chat says, Stuart, just so you know, mean IQ is always 100. No error will ever have a high average IQ than an other error. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's a good, that's a fact of the night right there. All right, our next Super Chat from Stupid Whore Energy, $5. Sarah asks, 
The Corinthian Creed was added to copies decades after Paul's writings. What do you think about that? I'm guessing that's for Stuart. Yeah, no, the the Corinthian Creed, if you're talking about chapter 15, 3 through 8, is dated to within years, if not months, based off of Paul saying, what I received, I pass on, having had that encounter with Peter and John there in Jerusalem. So they shared with him, and that's why he actually went back to Galatians, and you read in chapter 2, verse 14, talks about how he had to remind Peter, who was becoming Jewish and trying to get everybody circumcised, what the gospel really was, and that was Jesus Christ dying for our sins and having risen from the dead. All right. So th- there's all kinds of evidence for that. Thanks so much. And a lot of these are for, for you, Stuart, so if you... Um... Feel free to – some of them aren't questions, so if you want to respond, just say you want to respond. Um, Mike Billards does have a question. $5 Super Chat says, Stuart, I tried for 20 years to accept Jesus. What did I do wrong? <laughs> that's a good question. That's a, that's a tough one. I mean some people said have said to me, look, I was in a depressed state. I prayed to God for some friends. I was really lonely. And it felt like praying to a milk carton. So unanswered prayer could be what you experienced. Other people thought it was just supposed to be an emotional high. It was supposed to, I was supposed to feel God's presence, you know, as the wind pushing me in life. But then they go through a tough time and they don't feel God, so God must not exist. Um, other people oftentimes will say, look, I tried to find Jesus. And I thought he was somebody who just made me follow the rules. I thought he was all about giving rules like Mark Twain talked about instead of understanding what the grace of God is and how God actually unconditionally loves you versus it being all about rules. So whatever it is specifically to you, it's a great question. It's a hard one, but it's it's not too late. All right. Thanks so much. Mike Billage, another $5 super chat says Converse. Oh, he's thanking me for moderating. Oh, no problem. Converse, you've been good. <laughs> thanks for uh, – <laughs> Thanks, Good job, Thanks, Mike Billards, for that super chat. Um, next, we have a super chat for Inquisitor. Says it's from Mitchell for five dollars. Hey, Mitchell says question for the Inquisitor: If Jesus didn't physically exist, why do we live in the year twenty twenty? Well, why would we live in the year twenty twenty if he did exist? I mean. Jesus, the, the date of Jesus' birth is uncertain. Um, the the uh, testimonies in Mar- Matthew and Luke, uh, Matthew has him being born in the uh, reign of King Herod the Great, which ended in 4 BC. And uh, Luke has Mary still being pregnant in the Syrian governorship of Quirinius, uh, which was 680. So if Jesus did exist, we have no idea the date of his birth. And I, I've never heard any Christian claim that he was born in the year one. Uh, so um, the the 2020, you know, the dating system that was invented many centuries later. All right, thanks so much for that. Five um, dollar super chat from Stupid Whore Energy. Sarah says evidence is never defined as obvious to all people. There are elements of judgment in the interpretation of evidence slash proof. Anybody care to respond to that, or is that a... Uh, yeah, I, I was talking about proof and proofism. 
there are many different definitions. The one, the one I go by, Inquisitor probably goes by slightly different, but we're probably very similar on this. It is it, you know empirically verifiable and clear to all, um, but so that's not evidence. That's proof that I was saying. All right, thanks so much. Uh, our next super chat is from Grimlock for five dollars. Says Calvinists would disagree with Stewart and say that God chooses His elect. Non-believers aren't choosing to deny, as God has not elected them. Any response to that, or is that it? Wasn't really a question, but more. Of a, okay, he's a Calvinist, are you, Stuart? <laughs> no, I'm not a Calvinist. I can tell from the look on your face. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've seen people actually go to blows over this one, so I'll, I'll leave it on the table. Okay. All right. That's... I don't have a dog in this particular fight, so I will stay silent. All right. So we'll move on to our next question from Matthew Steele. Hey, Matt. Says, Stuart, hypothetically, could the spread and staying power of Christianity possibly be due to the relative effectiveness of its psychological unity? Or, I'm sorry, mm. I'm sorry, psychological utility, sorry. Yeah, I mean, Harvard came out with a study three weeks ago called, um, oh gosh, something, something despair. And it's uh, despair is in the title. And it's about how community and gathering in church every Sunday has some type of psychological effect that does away with depression exponentially. So anxiety and other mental health disorders, and it lowers your, well, life expectancy, uh, increases it by eight years and then suicide crimes, all those things decrease greatly. So the psychological unity, I, I think it has a lot to do with probably the Christian faith gives you a strong identity, gives you a meaning in life, gives you a purpose in life, gives you a hope that suffering can't take away. Um, it, it's things that are really important to actually reflect on and to really believe. And then you, if you have a community believing that, then that gives you tremendous psychological benefit rather than if I just go to the country club down the street and talk about the Mets, Jets, and Nets, and how nice, yeah. nice my car is, you're probably not going to get it. So I'm sorry, uh, one, one more thing here, because I, it may have been the way I read it. Um, I think what he's, he's I think he's responding to, whenever you're talking about the spread of early Christianity, how it spread uh, so rapidly, and and I think what he's asking is, like, uh, like, instead of it spreading rapidly because of the resurrection actually being true, could it be because of its effectiveness and the psychological utility, or do you think, or do you think that's kind of a short-sighted way to process the uh, early rise of Christianity? Yeah, I would say it's it's short-sighted. I, I wouldn't go with that whatsoever. Larry Hurtado, the professor at Marquette who passed away not too long ago, has written books on on this issue in terms of. One, to one title is "Destroyer of the Gods." Another title is "Why Would Anybody Want to Be a Christian Within the First Three Hundred Years." after Jesus' crucifixion. And so it's all about, you know, you lost reputation, you lost land, you typically lost all your friends, uh, you lost your family, and then you most likely would end up being martyred for what you believed. So there was no real utility in it. There was very little to be found in that sense. All right, thanks so much. Spart344 has a Patreon question for Stuart. 
Uh, thanks for being a, a patron. And uh, anybody else wants to be, you can start being a patron for as little as like I think it's a dollar to a month, which is nothing. And thanks for your support of the channel. It says for Stuart Newton, Goss, Turing, Leibniz, Pythagoras are all greater than Pascal. Why do you think Pascal is a, is greater than them? Uh, it's anecdotal. I gotta be honest. <laughs> That was weak. I'm glad the Inquisitor caught me on that. I got to study up my mathematicians. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, thanks. We'll move on to our next super chat, which is from S.J. Thomason. Five dollars says, "Who brainwashed the disciples? They were martyred for their decades of preaching for Jesus. Why did they do that, Inquisitor? Best explanation needed." I, well, first of all, I just say I didn't. I didn't state uh, that they were brainwashed. I offered it as a potential explanation for why they were willing to die, uh, because Stuart said no one would be willing to die to die for something that they knew was a lie. And my point was that I agree they probably did not believe it to be a lie, just as nine one one terrorists did not believe that Islam uh, was a lie. So I'm not. I wasn't claiming. Um, that they definitely were brainwashed. I was just saying it's a possible possible explanation for why they're willing to, to die for something um, that they believe to be true. All right. Thanks so much for that. Um, our last super chat, and then we'll move on to the, the questions from the audience, is from Gabriel K. for $5. says, primitive doesn't mean low IQ, by the way. It's the lack of lexical knowledge. Also, why is the most intelligent agent just wants people to believe? Yeah, I guess that's for me. Um, yes, primitive. So I would agree with Inquisitor when he made that statement. I, I'd agree in the sense of I, you know, people in that culture would have been more open, most likely, to the miraculous. You, know, you could debate that in Haiti with voodoo and a lot of what a lot of the Haitians believe in and in certain parts of Africa. But but they were more prone to believe. But my point was the Jews, you know, at that time period would have had a very tough time to actually believe in such a thing. And the miraculous, for example, all the evidence we have outside of, say, the New Testament. So if you go back further and Inquisitor, I, I forgot to touch on this one. We talked about Elisha and others. Uh, those resurrections, we would have way more evidence for the, the miracles that happen in the New Testament. But just to the point, all, mostly ex, extraneous miracles that happened, and you can cite Craig Keener on this, typically were just for a power play or a power show. It was like Superman showing up that we have um, from other sources, for example, stretching back to before Jesus' time. But Jesus' miracles always had a purpose and a point to them. So that's cr crucial to remember. And then just the belief piece, again, it goes back to belief, if you look at the definition, has way more to do with trust than just mental assent. So my belief as a Christian is not just, oh, yes, oh, gosh, I, I believe, you know, here's all that, here's, I got some evidence, and or, or God is my best, you know, he's my homeboy, I just believe that he's there. No, it's growing in trust, it's just like, if, if you have a spouse or a very close friend, you're growing in trust with them. You're going to doubt, you know, perhaps their goodness at times, but you're growing in the trust, growing the relationship with them. So it's way more than just mental assent. All right. Thanks so much. Chris Morris. First question says, Chris, 
Yes, it says, Neither Lincoln's <laughs> Gettysburg Address nor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream uh, were the main attraction at their gigs. Maybe the extraordinary, by necessity, must ordin- ordinary, I'm sorry, ordinarily evolve over time. I think that's for an inquisitor, maybe. I'm not sure I understood yeah. the question. <laughs> so thanks for passing it over to me. Yeah, um, um, you, I'll try and reread it, but it, 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 it looks like it may well, be. Do you know what he means? I mean, Chris is a very sharp guy. He's a good buddy of mine. Yeah, he says a- um, neither Lincoln's Gettysburg Address nor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream were the main attraction at their gigs. Maybe the extraordinary, by necessity, must ordinarily evolve over time. Maybe he's saying like that those didn't seem to be uh, the extraordinary part at the at that time uh, of their speech, you know, those speeches. But now we look at those speeches as like their best work or whatever. Maybe that's what he's trying to say. Maybe. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm going to upload this to my uh, own channel uh, at some point. So if you'd like to ask me, I can post a comment on that. Sure. All right. So we'll move on. And our next question is from Dave Langer. Another uh, familiar here says, question for Stuart, if you get to free questions, people claim to have seen Elvis after his death. Does that mean they really saw Elvis or could that have been a mistake? Mm. No, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I, I have no idea. I would have to, I, I would personally want to talk to the person and you know, again, hold their feet to the fire. I wonder what that would look like when the disciples had their feet really held to the fire. You know, you talk about the disciples' life change, how drastically they changed once that belief really started. So I've seen Elvis impersonators. I've talked with some of them. I mean, talk about extraordinary. They're typically not very extraordinary. I'm impressed by how much they love Elvis. So, no, I, you know, again, you would need, it's just like if you go back to the Quran, you know, Look at the manuscript evidence. Look at eyewitness testimony. Look at the years after manuscript as well as the events. Obviously, we don't have that with Elvis because he's way more recent. But it's just the, the evidence is, is way stronger than what you have for Elvis. All right. Thanks so much. Um, because there's so many questions for Stuart, um, if you don't mind, I'll ask a quick question to Inquisitor just to kind of sure. even it out. Uh, but I'm not trying to take one side over the other. Just something I was thinking when you were talking earlier. Um, does the background knowledge of God perhaps existing contribute to the likelihood uh, uh, of something like a resurrection occurring? Does it contribute to like uh, as more probable given that background information than you know? Like for example, if you're looking at this topic. From a completely naturalistic view, I can see why somebody would go, <laughs> people don't rise from the dead naturally. But if you're thinking like, but if you ha- but you have the background knowledge that a God exists, then you're looking at this, it would be like, oh, well, it's trivially easy for God to raise somebody from the dead. It's, like, it's simple. Does that, in your mind, make it any more uh, likely, I guess? Well, I think obviously if you believe in God, then uh, it's more likely that you're going to be believe in a resurrection. 
Um, having said that, you know, there are Christians out there who believe in God and think that the resurrection is, you know, a metaphor or a nice story. Um, but I don't think that accounts for most Christians. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think if you believe in God, but, you know, that's the point. You have to find evidence that God really exists, right? Um, if, if you presuppose that God exists, of course, a belief in the resurrection is easier. But my point, you know, in this uh, presentation, because I saw an earlier presentation by Matt Dillahunty, and he was kind of like really pushing the, you know, extraordinary claims, need extraordinary evidence point of view. And I just think there's so much more to it than that, um, based on what I read in the Bible when I was a Christian. And as I say, it was reading the Bible that actually led me away from Christianity. All right. Thanks so much for that. Now we'll move back to our questions for Stuart. <laughs> uh, question from our Mandarin-speaking friend, Brett, says, Stuart, how is presupposing God an evidence for the resurrection? That's not evidence. That's a claim that needs to be proven. So that's kind of along the same lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you guys pretty much just answered that one. I, I, I think you need to start with, obviously, for a resurrection, you have to start with God. So there, if there's a presuppositional bias that there is no God, you're not going to have a resurrection of a human being from the dead because we know as naturalists that that just doesn't happen. So that's what I'm saying. You have to have a God. And then I also presupposed a Jesus Christ as a historical figure. You need both of those ultimately to have had Jesus raised from the dead because also we believe that it was God who raised Jesus from the dead. So he is both human and divine, man and God. That's my whole point. It's, it's not that God is evidence for Jesus in, in that kind of way. No, you have to have evidence for who God is. Get a person to the point of saying, okay, maybe there could be a God. And now you are able to say to a person, okay, there could be a possibility. Like you just put beautifully, there could be a possibility now that this man may have raised from the dead. Yeah, sure. Okay. Very possibility that Muhammad flew up into the heavens on a winged horse. Sure. Anything is possible. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. All right, thanks so much. Next question from Chris Morris says, over 90% of the universe is knowably unknowable. Can't we hence defend any notion that the resurrection is light's legitimate bent on matter and energy still considered dark? Uh, I'm not sure which, who's, which one that's for. It says, can't we... Hence, defend any notion that the resurrection is light's legitimate bent on matter and still considered dark. Uh, does anybody want to um, respond to that one? I have no. I don't understand what he's trying to say, so I don't have a response. All right, Chris, Chris and I hopefully are going to write a book together, though. He's <laughs> a brilliant architect. Okay. Yeah, probably so far ahead that it's like the. But I, I think I kind of see what he's saying is like lights. Um, okay, well we'll skip it because it 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 may. Uh, I'm not sure how if it's related to the topic or not. But um, we have a question from Cold Loyalty. It says, can Stuart explain how Jesus was called Jesus of Nazareth, roughly? a century before the village of Nazareth existed? Mm. Um, from what I know, he came about later the term. He was not quoted as Jesus of Nazareth, you know, like when he was 12 years old. 
But uh, I would have to dig deeper on that as well. It's a good question. I think it came later. All right. Inquisitor, wait, I just want to go back to Inquisitor's point because this question's been asked twice and then Inquisitor made a comment. The whole idea of, you know, Muhammad on a winged horse and whether that could have happened or not. Sure, it could have happened. If there is a law, perhaps then you open the door for something extraordinary to have happened to Muhammad. Okay, fine. But that's, okay, just the possibility of that, the potentiality of it, you still need to ground it all in evidence. What's the evidence that we have for Allah to have actually existed and to exist today? What about Muhammad? And then you get into the things, what's the evidence that he or she did these kinds of things? So that's all, it's a very logical, easy sequence. And I think the Inquisitor, I, I think he gets it, but I don't know if those other two people did who asked the question. So that's my only point. All right. Thanks so much. Karag Nightwolf asks, question for Stuart would you say it's more of an extraordinary it's more of an extraordinary to claim how Jesus rose from the dead than if he did hmm you guys got to get the <laughs> you guys got to get these spell checks on all right let's try again question for Stuart would you say it's more of an extraordinary to claim how Jesus rose from the dead than if he did Okay, that's actually, if he didn't, that's actually a very interesting question. So that's one I was going to put to the Inquisitor because, you know, a lot of people wouldn't go in this direction, but I go in this direction. I think one of the best pieces of evidence for the resurrection to actually have occurred is this gigantic explosive growth of the early church in the Roman Empire that happened very early. And then obviously later on you have Constantine adopting the religion because of the power and the length and the scope that it had. Now, to that question, if I'm reading it right, if you take the women being the eyewitnesses, if you take perhaps, you know, just remove all the sources, remove all the eyewitness testimony, remove what we talked about in terms of the reliability of the manuscript evidence. If you start taking that and think about the minutia, I mean, we didn't even talk about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. There's so many things we did not cover. It's scary. If you add up all of the things that happened bit by bit to getting to extraordinary evidence and multiply them together, you would really have no other explanation of what could have potentially occurred. So maybe that's kind of where you're going in that direction because this whole idea of pulling off this grand hoax, the percentages of it having happened would be so minute it's scary. And oftentimes people don't think about that. They just think about what's all the evidence for it actually to have occurred. Well, what's all the evidence for it to have not, not have occurred in terms of these things really being stacked up? So that's a good question. Inquisitor, you, um, what do you think? You, uh, you want to respond to that? Do you think it's more uh, improbable that uh, a miracle uh, was performed or that, um, that all of this occurred without a miracle? I think I think it's more improbable that this occurred um, with a miracle. Um, I mean, the, the claim that Stuart just made that you know that this is a grand ho- that otherwise this has to be a grand hoax. I mean, that's a straw man. I never said that it's a grand I didn't hoax. Say you said I, I mean, I, no, I know. So you didn't. That's right. But you know, you, you raised that as an issue, and uh, that's not what I'm saying on the side, right? It's not, I, I never claimed it was a grand hoax. Um, you know, I never claimed that people knew it was a lie. Um, I mean, I think there is some evidence of uh, 
authors in the Bible lying. I've given evidence already of Paul. I could have talked as well about Matthew. Um, but yeah, I mean, we don't know. We don't know whether you know whether it was a hoax or not. So only a foolish person would make a, an outlandish claim that it was. Wait, right. so you wouldn't say that the character and the teachings are relatively consistent with Matthew and Paul and Jesus? Sorry, what teachings? I mean, you, you, well, you brought up Romans 3.27. You brought up the passage with Isaiah as well. But, yeah. I mean, if you take cumulatively the teachings of Paul and cumulatively the teachings of Matthew, I think it's tremendously difficult to try and make the case that saying that they were deceptive in some kind of way or they I were schizophrenic. Or I think it's tremendously easy to show that Matthew uh, was deceptive. I mean, he was deceptive in multiple ways. Uh, with Paul, I mean, the reason I focused on Paul was because his is the earliest account um, uh, of the resurrection. Um, and, you know, I only have one example of Paul telling a lie. But with Matthew, you know, it's far worse. If you, now, if you What's one of them? What's one of them? Um, well, for example, uh, when Matthew claimed in chapter 27 that um, the 30 pieces of silver um, being uh, that were paid to Judas was some kind of fulfillment of prophecy, I mean, he just got that completely wrong. I mean, I can go into, I mean, I, we're in a Q&A session, so I'm not going to go into details unless you want to. But, you know, that's just one example. I mean, there's, there's the slaughter of the infants, which it said was a prophecy. You know, it wasn't a prophecy. There was so a it's prophecies, you're saying? Okay. And, yeah, I mean, he, Matthew Thanks. lied consistently about prophets, prophecies in the Old Testament relating to the life of Jesus. Yeah, if you guys don't mind so that we can get to the rest of the questions, because uh, we do still have a few, um, I'll go ahead and move on to the next Um so Brian Stevens, uh, patron, says, um, question, is Stuart willing to start with the belief that Islam is the religion of truth? Is he open or closed to this? Closed. I don't believe that Allah and the Christian God are the same either. All right. Thanks so much for that. Um, Chris Morris asked, for Inquisitor, uh, Re Paul Paul's stone slash quarterstone discrepancy. So to his business as a tanner for both the stasis of tents and the dynamic of sales, like father like son. Yes. I have no idea what that question means. I do apologize. Um, it's okay. I, think, I, actually have, I actually have a video about uh, Paul on my channel, so if, if, if people want to go and have a look at it, they can uh, post a comment on there, and I'll always answer comments. All right, thanks so much. Um, yeah, Chris, feel free to uh, comment under his uh, video on there, and and uh, we'll see, and, and he'll he'll get uh, your question clarified. Um, we have a super chat just came in from Gabriel K. says. Uh, it took Christianity almost a millennia to spread truth Europe. I think he means through Europe. Is, Islam spread way faster. What are you talking about? Uh, so, Stuart, does it, if uh, Islam spread faster, what was that? I guess that's what his point was that um, that would make your criterion uh, more uh, likely for Islam? 
Oh, no, I, I wasn't saying that. I was talking about if it was a hoax, how it was able to get off the ground and how the early church was able to spread so quickly. I think the numerical growth certainly is evidence for there, ha- there having to be something. See, so many, so many academics have stated this. And uh, Shento Un, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. He's a Japanese scholar. He said that there has to be some type of, I mean, lightning bolt and I, th- I don't think he's a Christian either. This crazy lightning bolt to have exploded for the early church just to have started after Jesus's death and resurrection, or at least the claim. So that's why he said it has to be something else. No, numerically, I mean, the U.S. is going to be, or, or is it the world? The world's going to be close to 60%. No, no, sorry, it's the U.S. It's going to be close to 60% uh, Christian and Islam within the next 25 years because Islam is spreading so quickly. It's spreading slightly quicker than the Christian faith, but both are growing like wildfire, largely because we're in big families. Atheists don't really have much offspring. Right. Okay. Thanks so much. Um, Mobin4ya777 says, point to make to the Inquisitor. You are mistaken that Paul lied. He was quoting Isaiah 8.14 and 28.16, making a theological prophetic connection connection between the two verses and jesus okay now that's incorrect uh, isaiah 28 has a couple of words that are the same uh, as in the romans uh, verse that i quoted um but uh the the romans verse is not the same as either of those two verses in isaiah uh, so when paul was saying as it is written um there's no nowhere in isaiah that you can get those words all right, thanks so much. Uh, Sunflower says, Inquisitor, if people have been making up theistic stories uh, analogous to Christianity for thousands of years, what made Christianity so much more powerful and compelling? More powerful and compelling than what? I think he's saying, like, why? I think he's saying, like, than Islam? I mean, you, you need to have a comparison, right? I mean, the, Christianity certainly took off, and I think the a myriad of reasons for that, um, but there have been other religions that have also taken off and died. All right, thanks so much. Craig Nightwolf says, Stuart, we've heard valid arguments for God raising Jesus from the dead, but we haven't heard sound arguments. Sorry. We've heard valid arguments for God raising Jesus from the dead, but we haven't heard sound arguments. I think maybe means we haven't. Um can he provide one with sound premises? I think he's asking, like, do you have a syllogism um, for God raising Jesus from the dead? Evidence for God or evidence for the resurrection? Okay, evidence for the resurrection, I'm guessing. God raising... Uh, he, he says we haven't heard sound arguments for God raising Jesus from the dead. Okay, so, we, I mean, there's many different directions we could go in. I'll give the minimal facts again, though. After his crucifixion, Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb. Fact number two, on the Sunday after the crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Fact three, on separate occasions and under diverse circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. And then fact four, the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead, despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. All right, thanks so much. Can, yeah. can, I, just, can I just tell the viewers as well, those four facts are uh, coming from William Lane Craig. Oh, he, 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 he uses exactly that terminology. 
Uh, and again, I have a video on my channel where I, I debunk those arguments one by one. But Habermas and many people use minimal facts, and they're all different. Okay, I, I got you. Yeah, you're, so um, Inquisitors, you're saying like that's the form that Craig uses, but Stewart's saying that like, well, these are minimal facts from this all the scholars in the community agree on. Exactly, Christians and secular, right? Yeah. Okay, got you. Well, our next question comes from Gavin Herleman. Says, question for both: Does not the falsifiability of Christ risen mean that it did happen? The Jewish religious authorities were ideally placed to falsify it if it never happened. Mm-hmm. Is that to me? Uh, he said for both. I think he, what he's saying is like, hey, the Jewish authorities could have easily produced the body or uh, tried or falsified it, but it, it, he says it never it never happened. He's saying, does does them not being able to falsify it at the time not contribute to the fact that it could that it happened? Well, I mean. Christians in the early church um, disagreed a lot about who Jesus was and even whether Jesus had died, right? There were some Christians that thought Jesus was fully human and not at all divine. For example, the Ebionites. Uh, Some Christians thought that Jesus was fully divine and not at all human. Uh, Some said that Jesus was divine when undertaking his ministry, but he became human at the time of the crucifixion. Um, because a divine being couldn't be crucified. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of ideas floating around um, in the first four centuries. All right. Thanks so much. We, we only have a few more questions. Uh, one from Sai Luke says, question for Inquisitor. You claim that Luke 24 says Jesus ascended on the first day, but you gave no verse. So can you give us the verse in Luke that says Jesus ascended on first day? Uh, yeah, I didn't give the verse because it's the entire chapter. Uh, the entire chapter from verse 1 to 51 talks about um, uh, Jesus meeting his disciples and then ascending to heaven. Uh, so read the entire chapter, Luke 24. All right, thanks so much. Uh, Chris Morris wanted to clarify. He says he's appalled by Inquisitor's lack of respect for Paul. And then in quotes, stone versus cornerstone, arbitrariness is as likely to say that tanners can't stretch sails if they do tents. Paul made both. I, uh, I think we've already had that one, right? And I wasn't sure what the person was Yeah, I think at. he was trying to clarify. That just came in. I think he was just trying to um, clarify. But um, We had Obi-Wan Kenobi says, Does the Inquisitor hold all historical events to the standard that the resurrection is held to? If so, then he must deny Alexander the Great and many other ancient persons. No, absolutely not. As I said in my opening statement, that if the events being described are ordinary, um, then I accept ordinary evidence. So, for example, if I claim that I walked down the shops yesterday and bought a a loaf of bread um, and my wife corroborated it, I would expect somebody else to believe it. If I claim that I flew down to the shops by flapping my arms like a bird, then even if my wife uh, corroborated it, I would expect somebody to remain skeptical without better evidence. All right. Thanks so much for that. Uh, 
Let's see. Looks like that was our last question. Uh, yeah, that was our last question. So, hey, thanks so much, uh, Stuart and Inquisitor, for being here with us tonight. It made for an interesting discussion. I know that I had fun. And the chat was blowing up. We had like almost 300 people here the whole time. So it was a really good night. And um, if, uh, do you guys, is there anything else you guys want to add before we move, before we take off? So is it checking the post? I'm sorry? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just joking with you. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> My fault. I didn't hear you. Um, oh, thank you both. Converse, that was excellent. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Stuart. Thanks, Converse. Yeah, it was really nice. And I know if you guys are out there and you're like, hey, I'd really love to hear some more of this guy. Well, their links are in the description. So uh, feel free to check those out. And um, um, I think that SJ said that she was going to do a show tomorrow, um, a live chat about this tomorrow. So um, if, if you guys want to go check that out, that would be cool. And uh, thanks to everybody in the chat for being uh, um, cool and and. I didn't see too much, um, too many things in there that needed to be timed out or anybody need to be kicked in anything. So thanks for that. And um, so with that, um, keep sifting the reasonable from the unreasonable. Thanks so much, you guys.